Beloved listeners, we're going to talk now about a national issue which would have to be unique. There are in South Africa thousands of lions in captivity. They are bred in captivity. Lion breeding is a significant industry. It's one that the South African government has tried to stop but without success and there's a lion stalemate that seems impossible to break. Adam Veltz, W-E-L-Z, has been writing about this for the Yale Environment 360 website. He's uh, based in Cape Town and covers mainly environmental issues in South Africa and elsewhere. And he's a writer, photographer and filmmaker. Adam, tell me about the origins of this uh, odious lion industry. When did it begin? Well, yeah, we've got to go back a few decades. Um, before I, we do, I'd like to thank you for having me on your show, by the way. It's a great honor to be here. Um, we need to go back a few decades to the early 1990s when the South African government changed the law around wildlife, uh, effectively making it possible to privately own wild animals. Before then, uh, the vast majority of wild animals were considered, uh, in, to use the legal term, res nullis, effectively nobody's property. But uh, the government changed the law in the 1990s to make possible that if you adequately fenced or enclosed your property, you could then get a certificate which effectively granted you the right to privately own the wildlife within your property's boundaries. And what this meant is that it made it possible to go and buy wild animals like antelope or buffalo or giraffe or any of the you know many large mammals that we have in this country and put them on your farm. And if something went wrong, like a, a hole came in the fence and your buffalo walked off to your neighbor's land, you could go and claim that buffalo as your own because, you know, you'd been shown to take adequate precautions to have prevented that buffalo from leaving your land in the first place. And yeah, if there was some sort of accident, you could claim it back. So this meant that wild animals effectively became tradable commodities. And this basically brought a new industry into being. And, you know, almost overnight, you had hundreds and then thousands of people who'd been running cattle farms or sheep farms or what have you converting their land into wildlife ranches because it turned out to be a very profitable business and often quite easy to to run because a lot of the native wild animals are, are much better adapted to drought and the local diseases and things like that than, than cattle and sheep, for example, which of course are imported, you know, domestic stock. I understand you've been to wildlife auctions and that, uh, for example, a buffalo can sell for as much as two U.S. million. Oh, yeah. I mean, buffalo, um, sable antelope, uh, at one stage, rhinos, although rhinos have now declined in value because of all the rhino poaching we, we're having here, you know. But yeah, we, we have rhinos uh, in the past, now a Cape buffalo, sable antelope, often going for tens of millions of rands, which turn into millions of US or Australian dollars. And it's become, uh, you know, with some of these animals, it's become almost sort of a prestige thing with 
rich folks trying to outbid each other instead of saying, well, you know, I've got the rarest Ferrari in my garage. It's now well, I've got the biggest <laughs> buffalo in the province, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. So it's a bit of a pissing contest, to put it a little bluntly. But, you know, there's a lot of prestige attached to having, you know, the sable antelope with the longest horns or whatever it is. Um, so, so, yeah, so it's becoming... Nonetheless, yeah. lions are the main animal being bred captively. Well, I would say overall, lions are not necessarily the largest in terms of numbers. I mean, there are certain antelope and certain, you know, buffalo, for Cape buffalo, for example, are being bred in large numbers. But lions are an extremely lucrative species. If you look at what a, a wildlife rancher tends to make you know, per lion, it's often well in excess of what they would generally make with most other species. So the lion ranching sector of the wildlife ranching business is a, is a particularly lucrative sector, I would put it that way. I learned from you that lions in captivity breed very quickly. Yeah, I wouldn't say exactly like rabbits, but, you know... In the, in the wild, a female lion might have a litter of cubs every 18 months to two years. That would be a sort of normal interval between litters. But if you're breeding a lion in a small enclosure, and I mean really small, these enclosures are sometimes you know no larger than your average bedroom, for example. If you're breeding a lion in a small enclosure or in a, a small room or even in some cases in, in cages, you can take the cubs away from the mother within days. Sometimes they usually take them within about two weeks of them being born. And then the female goes into estrus again, and you can then get three to four litters in that sort of two-year period that you would normally have got, you know, one litter out of a, a wild lion, you can effectively multiply their breeding rate or increase their breeding rate three to four times. I, so have, a a I have a daughter, Saskia, who's an animal activist in Australia, and she uh, yeah. focused on puppy farming and managed to pretty much drive the puppy farming out of business. So this is effectively puppy farming for lions. Exactly. Exactly. There's not much difference except, of course, lions are a lot more dangerous than your average dog. But yeah, it's it's the same model. And what we saw when the government effectively created the private wildlife ranching industry, as we know today, through those legal changes back in the 90s, what we saw is that these lion farmers learned very quickly, not just to breed lions faster and cheaper, because obviously... Having a lion in captivity means you only have to, in a, in a small enclosure, means you only have to, you know, have a small piece of land. A wild lion, you know, needs thousands of acres and it needs a prey base. It needs, you know, you need to have antelope or zebras or something for the lion to eat. And, you know, you need to maintain a very large stretch of land to keep wild lions. Captive lions, you know, you keep them in a relatively small enclosure and you can go off and uh, to the local town and buy an old donkey or you can get, uh, you know, meat from the local um, abattoir that wasn't quite of human grade or you know, a lot of these lion uh, farmers get chickens from from the local chicken farm that, that aren't you know, quite of the quality that you would want to feed to people. And you just toss this meat over the fence and you know, you can keep your lions, as I say, a lot cheaper than a wild lion and you can breed them a lot faster. But but what happened was these guys also then learn how to make yet more money out of these lions because 
again, initially, they were breeding them for the trophy hunting market, mostly Americans, people who wanted to come over to South Africa and shoot a lion and, you know, mount it, stick it on their wall or turn it into a trophy mount, you know, back in the US. And again, because they were breeding these lions cheaper and faster, they could sell them these captive bred lions to the American trophy hunters on, you know, for a lot less money than a, a genuine wild lion. So that was the beginning of this market. But they soon learned that there were other ways of making money from these lions. So, for example, once you'd taken the cubs away from the mother, you could get well-meaning foreign volunteers. And I say volunteers in inverted commas because often these folks pay quite a lot of money. You would get young folks, especially from Europe, for example, to come over to South Africa and hand raise these lion cubs that you'd taken from their mother and and pay for the privilege. So you weren't just getting free labor, you were getting labor that paid you for the privilege of, of raising your lions. And these guys sometimes were told that they were raising these lion cubs because the mother had pushed them away or that they were being raised for special conservation projects and things like this. You know, a lot of these foreign volunteers were being lied to, honestly. And then once the lions reached a kind of, let's say, an adolescent or a teenage uh, stage, a lot of these uh, establishments, the lion breeding establishments, would do these lion walking tours. So you could go for a walk in the bush with these kind of teenage lions, and it was thrilling to you know walk in the bush alongside these large predators. Um, people paid good money to do that. And then, of course, once the lions reached adult size and they got too dangerous to do the the walking in the bush thing with they were then you know sold off into the trophy hunting business and you know that made a lot of people a, a lot of money now it's important to understand the conservation argument doesn't wash for a number of reasons including the fact that uh, the lions are in captivity are becoming inbred but also they're not uh, they're not an endangered species yeah, I think I think it's important to realize that we have um, the latest numbers I've seen. Obviously, these these vary a little bit, but the latest numbers I've seen is that we have somewhere between three and three and a half thousand genuinely wild lions in South Africa. And by genuinely wild lions, I mean lions that are completely self sufficient. They catch their own prey. That you know they live out in, in the bush, as it were, on their own without being fed. And we've reached our limit in terms of the amount of land we have available for genuine wild lions. You know, a lot of uh, these wild lions are on uh, in national parks and government-owned land, for example. A lot are also on private nature reserves. But we literally, in this country at this moment, do not have any more land available for wild lions. We're, we're at our limit. And they are not endangered. They breed extremely well inside these areas. In fact, we have too many wild lions in a lot of, of the private reserves are having to use contraception and, and things like this to keep their, their numbers under control. So we do not need captive bred lions to supplement our wild lion population in Southern Africa. Adam, right? would, would, you, would, you, would you tell your Australian listeners the story of the so-called hunters of these captive bred lions who are taken on a sort of pseudo-adventure and they find them. Yeah. So how the hunting works is, 
I mean, this caused a lot of the controversy early on when this industry started um, developing, as I say, in the 1990s. And very quickly, people realized that what was happening would be these lions that were effectively raised in captivity, they were either fully tame or pretty much half tame. They're very used to people. They'd never hunted in their lives. They'd never exhibited or, or developed like regular lion social behavior, right? So they, they just kind of sat around and did nothing in these enclosures all day and occasionally had had meat thrown over the, the fence, as it were, for them. Now, these are being sold to these Americans, not solely Americans, but the majority of these folks are Americans who would come in and shoot them. And again, I hesitate to call it a wild lion hunt because oftentimes there wasn't really much hunting involved. So what you would do if you were a lion owner, would you, you'd have a piece of land. Sometimes it was yours. Sometimes it was somebody else's that you, you rented or whatever. And you would know that your client, your shooter was coming on a particular day at a particular time. And the day before you would put your lion inside this enclosure, let's say a thousand hectares or something, maybe, maybe a, a lot less than that. And you would welcome your client and then you would drive them around in a Land Rover in circles inside your relatively small area of land, um, pretending to look for the lion. Of course, you'd know exactly where the lion was because you dropped it off in a particular place the day before with a with a piece of impala or a leg of cow or something to keep it uh, occupied. And then, you know, after a few hours of driving around in circles, you would miraculously come across this lion that you'd been hunting, you know, the whole morning, quote unquote. And then your client would have a very easy shot because normally these lions had no fear of people. They did have no aversion to people. They wouldn't even try and, and run away. And in, in, in some cases, even there's evidence that uh, lion farmers, in fact, drugged uh, the lions that were were going to be shot um, to make extra sure that they they wouldn't run away so really I mean these a lot of these hunts it's, it's you know we talk about shooting fish in a barrel well it was you know shooting lions in a barrel really uh, is what it came down to Adam Veltz, this is the worst story. Now, of course, the trophy hunters don't take all of the lion, do they? Only the, the head, skin and uh, claws. Yeah, generally, if you're going to mount a lion trophy, you, you're, you're taking the skull, you're taking the skin and you're taking the, the claws. Those are the sort of important parts that you need to make a, a lion trophy mount. And this this is where it sort of gets interesting because in the in the early days of lion ranching or lion farming, whatever captive lion breeding in South Africa, you know, once the hunter had come and shot their lion, the lion farmers would just dispose of the the rest of the lion skeleton and the flesh. You know, they would either be dumped. There's even stories in some cases some of these lion lion meat would be fed back to the other lions in in the facility. Um, but the leftovers were effectively worthless. But around um, 2008, uh, some more savvy people realized that they could take the, the lion skeleton that was left over after the hunt and sell it to Asia, where it would be resold in various places in China and Vietnam, particularly as tiger bone, because of course lions and tigers are very closely related. It's almost impossible to tell them apart. You know, even experts, you know, you know, have to look very closely at bones to tell them apart. 
And so very soon they developed a new industry, which was essentially bone exporting. I'm sorry, yeah, to, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but what were the tiger bones or the, the pseudo tiger bones meant to do? Were they an aphrodisiac or what? Well, I, I mean, I think that's a, a common sort of idea that, you know, virtually anything that wildlife product that gets used in, in, in Asia, in East Asia, is used as an aphrodisiac. But in fact, a lot of the time, these uh, tiger bone, for example, and other wildlife products are used in a for a range of different things. They're used as all kinds of health tonics, for example, for various you know types of ailments, some of which are sort of traditional uses where if you go back in time, you look at you know old Chinese medicine, there was sort of recipes, if you like, for medications that included tiger bone. Some of these things, the, the uses, the contemporary uses, are just simply made up. They're contemporary inventions by illegal wildlife trading networks. You know, these are very wealthy gangs. So they're also very, very good marketers. They're very, very good at spinning all sorts of stories to persuade people to buy tiger bone, or in this case, lion bone products. And so they might just be for general virility. They might be a product that everybody knows is very, very expensive. So it's a way of showing, you know, status and wealth by consuming it. So these uh, lion bones are often turned into what they call tiger bone cake, which are almost kind of like cookies, I guess, um, that are sort of, uh, they're boiled down and then crushed up and sort of mixed with a whole bunch of other stuff and, and put into these cookies, which are sort of considered uh, health tonic type of things. Sometimes entire skeletons are suspended in vats of alcohol. And over time, the essence of bone, I guess it is, sort of seeps into the alcohol. And then they sell tiger bone wine, as they call it, made from these things. So there's a huge range of, of different stuff sometimes the bones are turned into jewelry you know there's a whole bunch of different products that get made out of these these lion bones aka tiger bones now the government has tried sort of tried to stop the whole lion industry hasn't it yeah so as this business got bigger and bigger there was a lot of public opposition started building in south africa and internationally you know it was seen as uh, a lot of these lion farms, they didn't keep their lions in very good uh, condition, so there were welfare concerns that were raised. Also, just the idea of turning this iconic wild animal of Africa into this sort of rather miserable captive animal that was being used in this very blatantly commercial way, you know, really didn't stick right with a lot of people. And so a lot of opposition uh, started building to this. A lot of tourism experts started saying, listen, this is a stain on South Africa's reputation and our uh, ecotourism business is an incredibly important part of our economy here. And we really don't need to be, you know, discouraging tourists from coming to South Africa. So what happened is uh, by 2020, the pressure had become really intense and the government uh, put together sort of, let's say, an expert panel to look at a whole bunch of evidence for and against this industry continuing. And in early 2021, the national cabinet, which includes the president, decided to endorse the findings of their uh, committee, as it were, uh, that this industry wasn't a good thing and should be closed down. And in but, May but of 20 amazingly, yep. the environment minister disagrees. 
That's not, uh, let's finesse that a little bit here. So in May 2021, the Environment Minister then tasked her department to effectively action this decision that had been taken by National Cabinet, to put it into effect. And this first stage of this actioning consisted of putting together a task team to look for voluntary exit pathways, as they put it, for the lion breeders. In other words, let's find a way that we can all very nicely, without having to sue anybody or tell anybody what to do, that we can all sort of gently and voluntarily exit this industry. Now, this task team is still doing its work, um, but as it's been doing its work, you know, bearing in mind this is now more than two years on from the decision that was taken to close this industry down, there's been no sign that it's been at all effective. In, in other words, the lion industry continues pretty much in the same way that it always has. In fact, in this last year, I was speaking to a lion farmer who said it was his best trophy season ever. In fact, he had so many visiting uh, trophy shooters that he ran out of lions and he had to buy extra trophy lions from other people on his establishment. So this industry has, has carried on essentially largely unchanged despite this decision because the government doesn't seem to have the capacity to really clamp down on it. It also given that South Africa is now in a massive budget crisis and has the world's highest recorded unemployment level, the government has also let it be known that it has no money to fund any kind of exit from the industry that these lion farmers might want to take. So the government is basically saying to these farmers, we've made this decision to close your business down, but we don't have any money to compensate you for leaving the industry and we can't really force you to do that either because, well, we just don't have enough skilled staff to go around to these lion farms and actually inspect them and actually close them down. So we now sit in the situation where we have somewhere in the range of 8,000 lions that nobody really knows what to do with because, you know, we've now decided, as I say, we want to close the industry down. Well, at least the top level government has decided that. But how do you actually close this industry down? That's the question. And a lot of, let's say, animal welfare activists and conservation people who don't like the captive lion industry have said, well, we, we, you know, they privately say to me and they say to each other, you know, we just need to euthanize all these lions. We need to mass euthanize all these lions. But nobody wants to fund that. Because nobody wants to deal with the media firestorm that is going to result from a country killing 8,000 lions. I mean, you can just see that what those headlines are going to look like. So that is the most cost-effective, probably the most humane way of ending this industry. But nobody, not the hunters, not the government, not the animal welfare people, nobody wants to be seen to be putting any dollars towards that, right? In introducing, so in introducing you, I mentioned the fact that uh, because of inbreeding, these lions are not uh, genetically a lot of use, are they? Well, yes, and that comes back to the sort of conservation story. So the lions are not so much inbred as they are often of unknown genetic 
origin of unknown provenance. Let's put it this way. So if I'm running a serious wild species reintroduction program or introduction program of, of any kind, right, I want to put animals back into a landscape that are a genetically diverse enough to that they don't suffer problems that often go associated with inbreeding but i also want to make sure that their genes originate from that area in other words a lion from west africa thousands of kilometers away might look superficially the same as a lion from south africa but they're often quite different genetically. They are, in fact, very different genetically. And those genes that they might have that might not be obvious to the casual observer might be genes that allow them to live very successfully in that particular environment or that particular landscape, for example. So what you want to be doing when you're doing a, an introduction program is you want lions that are genetically from the region that you are reintroducing them you know, into. It, we want lions, it's in we, fact, we're looking at something which is almost the opposite to inbreeding. Well, yes. So that's the problem with a lot of these captive bred lions is we don't know where their ancestors came from. We've, for example, we've had lions over the years that have been imported from zoos in Europe. You know, uh, we've had lions that have come from who knows where. Some of the ranchers might have inbred their lions because they've just bred from the same lions generation after generation. Some of them might have these weird mongrel European zoo lion genes in them. A lot of ranchers, for example, have bred much as you would as a, you know, a farmer with domestic stock. They've bred their lions for particular characteristics. So they've bred lions to be very pale, almost albino, what they call white lions, for example. Or they've bred lions to have really big, dark manes, you know, because that's what they think their shooting clients want, for example. So these, these lions are, are not very good in terms of conservation. They've also not had the behaviors, you know, developed real wild lion behavior, having been raised in these things. So as I pointed out earlier, we have more than enough genuine wild lions in, in this country. If more land were to become available for rewilding, for repopulation with lions, we have more than enough, you know, genuine, high quality, genetically sound wild lions in this country to do this. We, we do not need captive bred lions for that. You know, so these captive bred lions of I would say I wouldn't say no conservation value, but they are very, very low conservation value. All this was caused or exacerbated by that uh, government problem with that uh, 1990s law allowing private ownership. Adam, thanks for coming on. It's been a fascinating and uh, saddening encounter. I've been talking to Adam Veltz, a South African writer, photographer, filmmaker based in Cape Town. And yes, we'll put a link to his article on our website and on the podcast notes. Thanks, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.